Hey, Big East fans. Long time no talk. Welcome to the Igloo with me, Timmy Ice. It's been exactly four weeks since the last time I heard from all of you. And the last time you heard from me, at least in podcast form. And the big reason why, if you might have seen my tweet from a couple weeks ago, I'm trying to remember the exact day. It was... Aha. This was two weeks ago. So, essentially, it was a halfway point. You have my last episode on April 2nd. Today's April 30th, and right in between, I said, and I quote, just in case for those... That haven't seen it yet. I don't know if this is just a result of the effects of the offseason or maybe from something else, but I've lost the passion I used to have with the Igloo and I'm considering shutting it down after this season. I just don't think I'm getting out what I'm putting into it anymore. So, I can't give it away now, but I will have a big announcement regarding the future of the Igloo at the end of the episode. But for now... I mean, the fact that I haven't even talked about the national championship yet. Shame on me. And shame on me for not picking UConn to win the whole thing. I know how well they did in non-conference. They went 11-0. But part of me is thinking, well, I think they're due to lose sometime in the tournament. I think they're like, yeah, yeah, they're definitely going to make the Final Four. How far are they going to go? I had them losing to Texas. Shame on me for not trusting the undefeated non-conference record because it all came to a head in Houston 27 days ago. And it's weird. I'm like running on Internet Explorer here. The fact I'm just recapping this now. I don't need to tell the story. UConn wins their fifth title, 76-59 over the Aztecs. And the theme of the game, a little bit of a slow start. But just like they have in so many other games, they got out to a big lead heading into the locker room with a big end of end of the big run at the end of the first half. And then they just coasted the rest of the way. San Diego State, like Hotball said, they just kind of just stick around. They hang around, and all of a sudden you look at you look up at the scoreboard and you're thinking, oh shit. It's a five-point game with about five minutes left, but UConn doesn't let them hang. They, they, and again, what they did differently in this tournament compared to others and, and other parts of the regular season, I should say, and part of what led them to turning around, turning things around after their January swoon was their ability to put their foot down in the middle of a run. And that big silencer came in the form of, guess who? Jordan Hawkins knocking down a three. And again, it was 60-55. They closed the game on a 16-4 run. That's huge. 
Adama Sonogo is the most outstanding player. Put up a double-double, 17 points and 10 rebounds. Tristan Newton, double-double, 19 points, 10 boards and 4 assists. Hawkins, and hit. by the way, Sonogo, as we now know, his final game in a UConn uniform. Same with Jordan Hawkins, 16 points, 5 and 9 shooting and 2 of 4 from deep. I mean, I'm trying not to go into too much detail. The bench did what they had to do. Really, they really, it was shortened to eight, eight men in the rotation. Naheem Aline and Joey Calcaterra, each with six off the pine. With Calcaterra knocking down a pair of three-pointers. Joey California, man, you know, he knocks down a three, you know. Gets all the confidence in the world on his side, and that's all he needs. Because he makes, he, he just needs to see one go in. Don't give him another look in San Diego State did. Um, then you had Donovan Klingo with four points in three boards in 10 minutes. And then Caravan with five points, but he had a big three towards the end of the first half. Seems like he just had a knack for those throughout the year, especially in the NCAA tournament. And then Andre Jackson only had three points, but six assists and a couple steals. edge on the glass. And they were much more efficient. They hold San Diego State just 26% from deep. 32% from the floor. 19 of 59. San Diego State 15 of 20 from the charity stripe. UConn went 24 and 27. Free throw shooting matters, kids. Anyways, 14 for Keyshawn Johnson to lead the way. 14 points. Uh, 3 of 5 from the floor. Knocked down his only 3 points after the game. I feel like that's not really his shtick. So I'm trying to think. Doesn't really Didn't really take a lot of 3s at all. Like, the, I mean, he only took 42 attempts the whole season. Um... But yeah, 14 points in 22 minutes, four rebounds, 13 each for Darion Trammell and Lamont Butler, each of which 5'11 shooting. Butler, three of seven from deep. Trammell, one for three. They hold star player Matt Bradley to just eight, two of nine shooting, 0 of four from long range. Hey, when you shut down your team's best player, more than, more often than not, you're going to win. And Brian Dutcher's Role players, you know, didn't step up the way they needed to. Uh, I mean, you know, Nathan Mensa only one point, 0 of 4 shooting, six rebounds. And then the bench, seven points for Jaden Ledee in 18 minutes. And then they got a three from Adam Seco. So congrats to UConn. Five national championships now. For UConn. I mean, listen. They're rising up there as a blue blood. They are now, They have to be undeniably now one of the top 10 programs in the history of the sport. Period. If not, if, top 10 at the very least. They, If they keep doing what they're doing, they're, they could be in the top five within the next few years. Hell, if they do it, if they run it back, go back to back, even without Sonogo and Hawkins... They won a sixth. They easily moved top five, but bare minimum, they are a top 10 program in college hoops history. I know they were a late bloomer, but five national championships in twenty in the span of 25 seasons. 
It's pretty damn impressive. And to do it with four... Wait. Three different head coaches. Obviously, Jim Calhoun won the first three. And then Kevin Ollie in 14. And then now Dan Hurley. So, I'm not even going to get into the logistics of the portal because... The portal is going to portal, okay? There's a lot of shit going on. And it's hard to stay on top of it. But there's already been... Well, I'll talk about the intra-conference transferring. Because there have been a, a healthy a healthy handful. Including two from St. John's. Dylan Adewusu is going across the bridge to New Jersey. Signing on with Seton Hall. Pasha Alexander... Felt like, hell... Huh, we're going to see a package deal here. Pasha going to go to Seton Hall. But instead, in a, I don't want to call this a Vince Russo swerve because Vince Russo is a jerk off and his swerves are stupid and he ruined professional wrestling or he made a mockery of it. He didn't ruin it. He made a mockery of professional wrestling and I don't think Pasha Alexander's making a mockery of the transfer portal or anything, but he he committed a butler. Definitely surprised me. On the surface. Obviously, I know it was in his list of schools that had he was interested in. But Butler? Out of all of them, I, I would say was the most surprising result. But two those are two intra-conference transfers. I mean, I'm trying to think of, I mean, and there, I'm essentially, I'm just going to do a laundry list of, you know, who's in, who's out. Well, who's out? See, Moss is now going to Cincinnati, which will make things interesting in the sky, uh, in the uh, skyline shootout, which will be at Centos this coming year. Oh, speaking of venture conference transfers. Nahima Lean. Going to St. John's, which, okay. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah, he's going to St. John's. That, that's exactly what I thought. I don't know why I'm second-guessing myself, but whatever. Um, So you got Nahima Lean to St. John's. And it's been really cool to see how supportive UConn's been, that their fans have been. Even wishing Sonogo and Hawkins well. Would they have loved to see them back? Absolutely. But for them to be so encouraging of them, like, go go be great. Even if it's against a Big East rival school. That speaks a lot to the character of a lot of these fans. Instead of being embroiled in bitterness, they're grateful for the fact that he got he was a part of a team that brought that fan base a national championship. Respective people. It matters. And then you shockingly, Ryan Nemhard leaves Creighton, falls in the footsteps of his older brother Andrew, goes to Gonzaga. But they did pick up two major transfers, which they needed 
they clearly, clearly needed some reinforcements after Nemhard's departure. Trying to... Well, I'll tell you another thing, obviously. Baylor Shireman coming back. Huge. But they did get Stephen Ashworth from Utah State, which is immense. Um... And that's all I know for now. I mean, DePaul, not much going on. Georgetown, not really. Marquette, not really. Providence has been. But Seton Hall, I mean, a complete lack of activity. You're like, come on, do something. Well, they've kind of woken up because they just got someone. Well, they first of all, they finally got at least one guy. I'm like, okay, they have someone um so they got at a wusu but now try to find who was most oh oh you 2023. Oh, they got Elijah Hutchins Everett from Austin P. 2021 Ohio Valley transfer of the uh, freshman of the year. I don't know why I thought transfer of the year. That's not existent, although it should be, but whatever. St. John's got one of the. Um, obviously, would you. We all know who St. John's wanted. Which was uh, Walter Clayton. But they did get Denise Jenkins, which is like, okay, that's a good, decent, respectable consolation prize. They did get another guy from Iona, Quinn Zelensky, and Cruz Davis. So at least. Patino got a few of his guys. Would he have loved to have Walter Clayton? Hell yeah. But to get those three, I'm like, okay, that's that'll be good. But clearly, it's a huge what-if thing. But whatever. Villanova, though, they got a huge splash getting Hakeem Hart from Maryland. That That's immense. Showing that, okay, we're trying to rebuild, not just, well, not rebuild, but reload. And then Xavier, I mean, they got Quincy Olivari. That's a big pickup coming over from Rice. And they also got Davion McKnight from Western Kentucky. Oh, and you got Logan Duncombe from Indiana. So, 
So that was that's what's happening around the men's side. Now on the women's side, I mean the shocker, Anissa Morrow. Still don't know where she's gonna land, but she's been teasing it. Like, am I going to USC? Am I going to LSU? Like the mind games. <laughs> Gotta love the transfer portal and all that stuff. But in more positive news, well, the WNBA draft. Maddie Segrist went third to the Dallas Wings, and then with the fifth pick, also belonged to Dallas. They added another Big East star. Lou Lopez, Seneschal from UConn. The two Big East stars in the top five. And then in round two, another UConn Husky was taken. Dorka Juhas, second round pick of the Minnesota Lynx. So congratulations to all three. But I just want to just, I want to address this because I watched this live and then I watched video back of it afterwards. And I, I quote tweeted this. Holly Rowe, who's supposed to be one of the most respectable, well, respected one of the most respected reporters on air talents that ESPN has to offer was so fucking cringy. Her open was just uncomfortable all the way around of her walking around the room. She slandered Bria Beal. Just, like, just completely roasting her shoe. I'm like, really? This is draft night? A, pl- a time and day to showcase these players and talk about their great prospects? Is that a deficiency of her shooting? Sure. But unnecessary roasting. From Holly Rowe. Maybe she meant well. Maybe she didn't. I don't know. By the way, shouldn't have came out of her mouth. And then some of the other shit she pulled. Calling Villanova basically a no-name school with no tradition. That's fucking bullshit. And she knows it. And then to throw the... <laughs> She's talking to Bria Beal again after she got picked. And then all of a sudden, she throws a curveball. You talk about your struggles with mental health, like, excuse me, what? This is supposed to be the happiest moment of her life, and you're going to bring that shit up? Read the room, lady. Goddamn. And it just makes you think, what the fuck is she doing at this thing? And not to mention... I think she, I forgot who she was asking. I think it was one of the LSU's top players that isn't that was on the championship team that's not coming back. That won the national championship over Iowa. And by the way, they just picked up Haley Van Lith, Jesus Christ, and they get Morrow game over. Um, but she's like, oh yeah, what were we talking about earlier? And she's like, and the girls just look at her like, what are you talking about? Like. Like, it's been 20 days. Holly Rowe still hasn't apologized for that rubbish. She owes an apology to the viewers. 
to Maddie, to Bria Beal. Hell, again, to everyone who had to watch that monstrosity. But again, still, you know, sending my congratulations to Maddie, who I had the great pleasure of covering the last two years. Just an upstanding human being who clearly remembers her roots. Dating back, you know, to Poughkeepsie, New York, her hometown. And now, and a player who was not very highly touted at all. I don't even think she was, she was she, did, was she even classified, you know, like a three-star, two-star, whatever. I don't think she was. But to go from unheralded, unheralded to the number three pick in the WNBA draft. That just, I'm a big believer in good things coming to good people. And Maddie is one of the best people in all of women's basketball. Players, coaches, you name it. So congrats to Maddie and of course Lou and Dorka uh, on their selections into the WNBA draft. Being selected in the WNBA draft. And can't wait to see what they're capable of, you know, with Maddie and Lou in Dallas and then Dorka in Minnesota. I know it, I talked a lot about the transfer portal, but something I haven't done in a while. An interview with a former Big E star. I know I had a former Biggie's women's star on a couple months ago, Brianna Hurley. But I'm going to turn back the clock on the men's side. First time I've done something like that in a while. Joining me next, I got a pretty great interview. Talked about a lot with former Creighton point guard Mo Watson. That's coming up right now. Welcome back to the Igloo. As I mentioned earlier, haven't done one of these interviews in a while, but. Now that it is, we're finally here, got a good one. He played for the Creighton Blue Jays from 2015 to 17 and before an unfortunate season any injury. He was leading the nation in assists. The guy that all short kings in college basketball should look up to for as an example. Uh, 5'10", but he packed a major punch as a the floor general for Creighton during, their, during 2015 to 17. Currently in Romania. The pride of Philadelphia, Maurice Watson Jr. Mo, welcome to the show, my man. Thanks for having me on, man. How you doing? You know, no complaints on my end. You know, anytime I get to like talk about the past, we live good old days. I mean, why would you turn that down? But so let's talk about your coming from Philadelphia. Looking back on it, you know, you go into the new biggies years after, but did the old Big East kind of influence you a little bit? How much of it did you watch? And maybe influ- how much it influenced your game growing up? Uh, well, you know, the main reason I actually wanted to go to Creighton was because they were in the Big East. Um, I've said this on multiple occasions. Um, the Big East has been a dream conference for me, you know, coming from Philly. But also being a big Villanova fan growing up. Uh, I pretty much did a lot of things at Villanova, you know, um, we had AAU practices there. We would go work out there. We had pretty much a lot of access to the gym. Um, so wanting to go to Villanova was the main reason why I wanted to go to the Big East. You know, my plan was come out of Philly, go to Nova, you know, go to the NBA from there. You know, that was always the dream. 
And coming from Boston, uh, I had offers from Nova when I transferred, but I didn't have it when I came out of high school. So the main reason was to go to Creighton was to get to play against Villanova twice um, a year. Um, but, you know, growing about a Philly, it's just tough. You know, it's tough. It's 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 tough because of attitude. It's tough because of environment. Um, tough because of attitude. Tough because of environment. I don't know why I moved to get my phone charger. But, yes, um, you know, there were a lot of days where, you know, you had to build certain toughness by, you know, you could go to the courts. You know, you, you go to the outside courts in the summer to play with your friends. And um, if you weren't good, then you weren't getting picked up. Um, if you had bad weekend, then that next day when you have them conversations and, you know, the whole city is claiming that you're not good enough or that you're not one of the best ones. And, um, you know, you have those things on one side and you may have your things like me. I was always uh, smaller than the rest and I always played for my dad. So there was never really true credit given to me because they always doubted me because I was too short. And they always said I was only doing the things I was doing because I played for my dad and I had the freedom. Um, so watching guys come through the Big East, you know, like Kyle Lowry, who's from Philly, guys like Johnny Flynn, um, even uh, even McNamara, he was one of you know my favorites just because of the dog um, that they had. Um, so really, just wanting to be a part of that, uh, like you knew if if you played in the Big East, whether you made the NBA or not, that was kind of a stamp because not everybody got a chance to play in the Big East. So, you know, that was always a dream of mine. And when I had the opportunity, you know, I definitely couldn't pass it up. So for you, obviously, there's a there you could have a lot of chips on your shoulder, you know, being 5'10", you know. But to go from BU, uh, by the way, uh, I've actually played – I went to broadcasting camp in Boston when I was a teenager. Yeah. And one summer we had a game of knockout in case gymnasium. In case so gym. I wanted to yeah. stake that little claim. Uh, but yeah. for you to go from the Patriot League to the Big East, you know – was there during the time of BU where you're trying to prove yourself that you could get to that level that you got to? Um, uh, I don't know if that was my mindset when I was there initially. Um, you know, I told myself out of high school that whatever school I go to, I'm only going to go for two years and then I'm going to transfer to a bigger school. That was my plan initially. But when I decided to go to BU, I went there because I took basketball off the table instead of, you know, what school do I want to go to if I didn't play basketball, where would I go? And Boston was just the perfect city. It was, you know, the perfect, um, the perfect place for me. And then, you know, the school was, was better than some Ivy League schools. Um, but then, but one of the main reasons was Coach Joe Jones was on Villanova staff, so his offense was tailored just like Villanova's. And like I said, I wanted to go to Villanova, so to go to a coach who was on the staff was definitely a big thing for me. Um, and, you know, once I got there, I want to say after my rookie season. Uh, or like my freshman year, I would say after my freshman year, uh, DJ Irving, who was there before, who's been like a mentor to me ever since we linked up. Um, he told me like, hey, you know, you have a chance to, you know, go to the NBA if you can kill here for one more year and then transfer to a bigger school. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not doing that. I believe in loyalty and, you know, I've never transferred anywhere. So I'm just going to, you know, just stick it out. And as the season started to progress, uh I started getting uh, calls to my people from like GMs or scouts. And they were like, in order for him to be considered in the NBA, he has to play against, you know, better competition. He has to be on a bigger stage where hockey isn't the main thing. Basketball is the main thing. 
where you have TV games and you're and you're seen a lot. Like right now, we don't even get to see you. Maybe one time every now and then, a game will pop up and we play against like UConn or um, we played against Maryland. So being able to play against those bigger teams, it got me on a little radar. You know, um, I played at the Boston Garden my first game of my sophomore season, and it was a scout there. Like, you know, you need to go to a better place. And then it started to creep into my mind, like, okay, maybe I can do this. And uh, we went 24 and seven that year. You know, we lost in the conference championship, played the NIT. Um, and afterwards, you know, my dad was just like, hey, we have to take a real look about what we're gonna do. So I decided to transfer. Um, and, you know, even talking to Coach Jones, I was convinced not to leave. Like I almost didn't leave. But my dad was such a heavy prevalent, like a heavy opinion on my life and my game and I always trust him. And he was just like, no, if you want to go, then, you know, there was no big Dame Lillard route, you know, back then. You know, there was nobody from a mid-major to come in and be a star in the NBA. So um, I wanted to go show what I wanted to do on a bigger level. And, you know, I'm always striving for the best um, and always wanting to prove like, hey, I don't care about my size or where you guys think I should be at. I can I can perform on any level. So going to Creighton was a was a challenge for me. Um, in the Big East, and they were high major now, but it wasn't like some of the other schools I was talking to, like Vandy, uh, Purdue, Illinois. These guys get McDonald's All-Americans. They recruit over guys. They kick guys out and take their scholarships. Like These are political uh, teams. To me, Creighton was a mid-major attitude and mid-major operation operating in the Big East, kind of like Gonzaga to me. Uh, so I wanted to go there and just kind of beat a man uh, for a team that I know I have I have patience to make my mistakes, to uh, have a learning curve. Um, I had a great, you know, redshirt year with player development um, and things of that nature. So uh it was definitely about wanting to prove myself against these guys who are going to be in the NBA or guys that they said was the best in my position and to come out and prove that I can hang with the best of them. So what ended up making Creighton that most appealing option to you to, you know, take your game from, you know, the Northeast all the way to, as John Rothstein put in, obviously getting for the County Crows somewhere in middle America. Somewhere in middle America. Yeah. And I mean, that's an accurate, that's, that's accurate tweet. I mean, there's nothing around, I mean, there is things around now that I've been there, but, you know, from Philly, the only places I've heard about that area was, like, Kansas from, like, the Wizard of Oz. And, you know, you don't really know about, like, places like Iowa and South Dakota. And these are places where you just – Omaha, where you just think, I'm never going to go there. It's on the other side of, of the world. Um, but on my visit to Creighton, you know, Creighton was my first visit. Um, and Coach Pat Sellers was still there at the time. And he recruited me at Hofstra. So he actually – I had a – flight to Creighton on like a two like a Tuesday or something no maybe a Friday and he flew in to Boston on Thursday anyway came to the in-home visit with me you know we talked we got some food uh showed me a bunch of stuff on the iPad about the private plane and things like that and when I got there it was it was nighttime when I landed but it was just bright lights you know we drove right past the stadium uh right past the baseball stadium so we were all in old town just kind of driving around and, and and just seeing like, okay, this is not middle of nowhere. Um, and uh, the gym wasn't even done. Like they were having like a horse show or something. 
but when I went in there, they had my face on the jumbotron with some of my highlights there. Um, I walked in, they were like announced. They had like an announcer. I don't know if it was a live announcer or it was a video, like a voice recording of them introducing me, playing throughout the whole arena. And uh, you know, the eighteen thousand fans is one of the major things because at BU we probably got two thousand max. Some games five hundred. So to go play in front of eighteen thousand is a dream, you know. Um, uh, I remember Doug came. Doug was on campus for that weekend. Um, he walked me around the gym and just was telling me, like, if you come here and you do well, they'll give you the keys to the city. You'll be the face everywhere. And the city is looking for someone else to embrace and to rally around. Um, so to hear that from Doug it actually meant a lot. Um, and then the last thing was I went to Coach Mack's office at the end of the visit. You know, we just did the academics and met with everybody. The campus was small, intimate, um, so I can get to know everybody. So, I mean, I was happy with the city. And at that point, I wasn't trying to go anywhere for the lifestyle. Like, I, like I say all the time, Creighton was the best for my basketball career. But like Boston was best because of the the lifestyle. You know, I'm a city boy, a lot of activity, go to a school from 30,000 people to five. It was just a big difference. Um, so I was looking really at basketball only. Um, and I remember this, you know, like it's nothing. I walked in the office. And I played against Austin Chapman, you know, growing up because he played for Team Kobe, the AAU team in Philadelphia. Um, so I knew him already. And, you know, uh, they had Coach Mack had a video where it would show three or four of Austin's highlights and then three or four of my highlights. Three or four of him shooting threes, three or four of me shooting threes. It was just you know, like a comparison. And he was like, you can do the same exact things here but I believe you can take us to another level. And seeing that, I was like, you know, he told me, hey, I'll give you freedom to play as long as, you know, you work hard, I'll give you all the freedom in the world. I'm not promising you that you'll start, I'm not promising you anything, but I'm promising you that when you play, you'll have freedom and you'll have somebody here who cares about you. And I had more visits lined up, but I, I ended up committing right on the spot in that office. Um, I got on a private plane, it was just a dream. Like my mom was happy, my dad was happy. Um, so it was, it was, it was really, uh, really just that really having a confidence with coach Mack that I can go to the biggies and be me as opposed to going there. Maybe like when I was thinking about going to Villanova, I've, I've, they already had Archie still and they had Jalen on the bench. And even though they do three guard lineups, how much attention will I have gotten? You know, I would have loved to go play there, but I wanted to be the reason the team was good. And I thought going to Creighton gave me the best chance to have the biggest imprint on the school, the campus, and ultimately the whole state. So the year after, you know, you have your redshirt year, your your team finished tied at the bottom of the league. And you can't really blame them, per se, because first year without Doug, obviously, it's going to have a lingering yep. effect. But you picked to finish – I remember DePaul was picked to finish above you. And yep. I feel like for you – that was another little quiver in your, in your, yeah, just something to have in your ammo. Like, like we got picked to finish that. We got something to prove. At what point did you kind of think to yourself, I think we actually got a good team on our hands. Uh, the whole time, actually. Uh, when I, during my red shirt, you got knew who was coming back already. And, and, you know, we had some new commits and then we had, uh, we had some guys red shirt with me. Then we had some guys come into red shirt, like Marcus and Justin. 
Um, and I don't know if you remember this, but when I my junior year, the staff was a little bit upset with me a little bit because when I did my media day, I I said they put us to win the the uh, the last place. I think we're going to come in first. Like we have dogs over here. Like because when you when you put us at the bottom, my way of motivating the guys was putting us at the top and us working together. Um, I said you know we're you know we're underdogs, and when you let dogs off the leash, they're going to maul everybody. So I think that might have been my quote. Uh, and it went around a lot in the beginning of the year, you know, for preseason. And, uh, and we had an up and down Big East, you know, year. But that was just me being so confident and expecting that the work that we put in every day was only going to lead us to last. I didn't believe in that. Um, I think we had a better year than everyone expected us to have. Uh, but we had some growing pains. You know, we had we had this, you know, of losing games, being up by two. Like we probably lost six or seven games. But we were up by two up by four in the last minute and just lose the game, you know? Um, so we were close to being one of the top three or four teams. And that's when I realized in order to be really good, literally every possession matters. Every shot matters. Every, you know, your mentality during the game matters. Um, so I always look for little things in the, in my, you know, to have in my ammo, like the negative comments. I After games, I always go to, the comment board to pictures and see what fans are commenting, what other teams fans are commenting. Because if I see that they're doubting us or they're saying that, you know, we can't shoot or that we're going to fold, that makes me hungrier. And it makes me a better leader because I know I have to try to pull my guys to prove everybody wrong. And to me, that's one of the best motivations you can have is someone telling you that you can't and you actually can. The funny thing is, so that media day quote, I'm like, that's nothing. I know. I don't know if you heard what Tyler Kolek said at media day this past season about being picked. Ironically, to pick, pick to finish ninth, he said, "Fuck them." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's nothing. Yeah. I mean, what that's you said nothing. was nothing compared to that. Nothing. Nope. And I, well, you know, I took, I took a. Uh, when I was at, you know, my mom is a reading specialist, so all her life she's been an English teacher, reading specialist, and she always taught me what I should say and how to kind of filter my words for the media. And if I was in the, if media now, I feel like when we were in school 10, you know, what's that seven, eight years ago, it was starting to open up for the media and, and for players to really have those that, you know, that dialogue. I would probably have said exactly what Kolek said. I probably would have said the same thing. You know, I would have said something maybe worse than that, you know, uh, but I love that confidence and, you know, when I watched Marquette this year, you have somebody that's tough like Shaka, and you have players like that, like your leader. I knew they were going to win because they were just they were just tougher, you know, like they were tougher than everyone else. Um, them and UConn had some really good battles, but they were tougher because you have guys who may not be as skilled as the rest of, you know, they may not level up to the amount of skill or talent at other schools. But when you have a leader who's a dog, like you have grit, you have heart, you have a tough leader and a coach, those things end up falling for you. Like you get rewarded when you do those, when you do those things the right way. Um, and I think that just those little comments, like I had to watch my comments the whole time because the coaches were just like, hey, tone it down a little bit, you know. Before every interview, whether it was before practice or before the, or before the game, shoot around or whatever, they would always tell me, hey, the media wants you, but you know, tone it down today. Don't don't say nothing too crazy. Like so, I always went into an interview with that mindset of okay, 
coaches want me to kind of keep it cool today, so I ain't going to say nothing. But when they didn't, I was able to pop my trip. I was able to talk my trash and pop my ish, and, you know, we were good. Like, you don't – like, it's actually like, hey, don't give them bullets and more material. Just go ahead and answer status quo, and, you know, we, you know, we focus on tomorrow. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, like moments where like, yeah, I can talk my trash. I think your signature game of your junior year. I remember watching this in my dorm room when you literally carved Xavier up like a Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, what was that atmosphere like? And secondly, to get that kind of big signature win against a ranked opponent and one as good as Xavier. I mean, just talk me through everything that was going through and the kind of zone that you got into take over. Yeah. Uh, well, we had just. We had just lost three games in a row, um, and we were feeling our postseason tournament hopes just slip away. Um, the atmosphere during that, you know, during the pregame, like the prep and everything was just like, let's just go do another game. We might not win, might not, you know, play we want to play, but let's just go play. Um, but what got me in the zone was seeing that, I think that was the real first of me playing that I got to feel the energy of the fans despite the losing. Um, because during my redshirt year, we started off 0-8 in the Big East. And fans were always still coming out, but it wasn't as loud as it was in there for that Xavier game. Um, so, you know, Coach Mack was talking to me before that game about just being a little bit more aggressive. You know, I, I always want to just pass and get everyone started first, and then I can come out and score. Um, but he was talking about how we're kind of just down right now. Who's going to who's gonna be the leader to pick us up? Um, and early on in that game, I realized I had it like, you know, we had it going. We got up 21-4. And I was like, okay, we have a good lead right now. I have to do whatever it takes to make sure we don't lose it. Uh, and then, like, the last 12 to 10 to 15, 10 to 14 minutes of the second half, I kind of blacked out. Like the biggest games I have, I don't really remember them until I go back and watch because there's so much on my mind. Like every basket, I want to talk to the crowd. Every uh, I'm trying to remember every single play that Coach Mack has given us. We have about 40 pages of plays in the playbook. It's, you know, it's crazy. Um, but being in that zone, I say, you know what? I have a chance to really bring this win home. You don't get wins against top five teams. So it was one of the situations where it was like, you know, this is why you play. This is why you work so hard all summer. This is why you sacrifice nights out with your friends. And um, back then it was like, hey, look, just take over. And, uh, you know, the team, like my teammates were coming to me like, yo, you have to lead us to this win. Like that makes me feel like, one, I don't have a choice, <laughs> right? And and number two, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. If I don't take advantage of this, I might not get this trust again. Like the like because the the your margin for error is so small in college, um, because it's like a next man up mentality. You know, everyone is good. Everyone can kind of someone can come take your spot like it's nothing. So you know, after that game, I kind of solidified. Okay, I can do this. You know, we had lost to Indiana by twenty. Uh, that might have been our only high major game that year, I believe. I didn't you? Uh, I feel like didn't y'all play at Oklahoma with Buddy? We did. We did. We played at Oklahoma and we lost. Yep, yep. We played at Oklahoma uh, and we were winning that game. And Buddy went crazy at the end. He might have had like twelve or fourteen points, couple threes, couple and ones. Um, and I think that was where I'm like, okay, I can hang with these dudes, but I got to get a win. Um, and after that win, 
I saw my stock shoot up. Like I think that was the game that really put me on the radar and put me on the map. So it's crazy that you brought that game up because life as a basketball player hadn't been the same since that game. It got it got ten times better, you know, for me personally. Uh, we going on to win some more games after that. Kind of turned the season around a little bit. And it really gave me the confidence, like, okay, I can lead us against these top 10 teams. Um, it also brought me a little disappointment that it took that game so late in order for me to feel this way because I felt like I could have led the team better for, uh, from the previous games that we, you know, before that Xavier game. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd obviously seen you because I remember you guys beat Seton Hall in Newark by, like, 15 and yeah, it was so bad to the point that I, you, I don't know if you know about this. Derek Gordon called a team a players only meeting the next day. Like that's how bad it was. The, the, the remember, that you handed out. <laughs> I remember it would be bad. I thought it would be bad when they benched Whitehead and Rodriguez pretty much the whole second half. Yep. Yep. I was, I was on, I wasn't on the call for college for a student radio station. I was like the beat writer. And I'm like, this is not a good game for me to be live tweeting. This is going to be rough. Yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. It was a rough one. That was probably one of the best games because I had twenty or twenty five family members drive up to that game too. Uh, I might have had like uh, maybe eleven and fourteen assists or something like that. And it was one of the best outings we had as it like where we just dominated from beginning to finish. Uh, but that was definitely one of my favorite games, just because you play against guys like Whitehead, who's from New York, uh, Rodriguez, who's from New York, you know, Kadeen Carrington. And as you you remember when you start seeing these guys in college, oh, I played against him in the ISA League. I played against him when I came up there and for this tournament when I was 12 or 13. Um, or, or, or you see these guys getting certain amounts of media attention. This guy is better than this. He's the best that. And when you play against him, you're either going to confirm what they're saying or you're going to be that one that's like, hold on, he can do that too. Um, and I was always a firm believer of like, you know, my dad would tell me they may come to the gym to see me, like to recruit me, but who's to say that I can't go crazy and they start looking at me after so I said, okay, if this dude has clout and he has the politics behind him and he has expectations, why don't I be one of those few that either cooked him or played well against him and I can steal some shine? So whenever we played against big time dudes, you know, Chris Dunn and, you know, Ben Bensel and playing against all these guys, you know, Devontae Smith Rivera, like that was when I wanted to play my best because they're watching them, but they're watching me at the same time and I can come steal some shine from them. So that was one of the big wins for me. Absolutely. So another thing that reminds me, because I remember it was Seton Hall, your opponent, like, because, you know, you'd be, be, you you could be a part of like, you know, special promotional nights. But tell me what it was like the first time you got to experience Creighton versus Cancer, the pink out. Yeah, that was I mean, we lost we lost that game. Uh, so I was a little upset about it, but it was it was it was those it was one of those games that reminded me of going to Sixers games. Uh, I've been to college games before, but they don't feel like a professional experience. But we're going to this, but you know, when I'm going to the Creighton game and I'm just, you know, I'm in the pink out, I'm in the huddle, but I'm just, I'm always taking in the fans. Like, I don't know if you like, we'll watch four games sometimes. You might just catch me at half court or on a three point line, just spinning and looking at the crowd to really soak in the fact that I'm playing in front of this many people or that I'm in this environment. Um, 
but they have like the kiss cam. They have um, stuff happening in between timeouts with little kids getting shots up from half court, foul line or whatever. And then they have stuff where you can, you know, flash your credit card for promotions. And then the pink out night was, it was crazy when they said, if you have anyone that you lost, hold up the name on the sticker on the card. And you saw everyone raised. And it was just like basketball didn't matter for those 30 seconds that they did that. Because I realized now I was now a part of something bigger. Uh, I'm a part of a real professional atmosphere. And, you know, someone paid like 2500 for my jersey that game. And I'm just amazed that I had a jersey go for that much. Like it, 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 it those type nights turn you more into a, just in a, like it take you to a point of appreciation and just being grateful, whether you want to lose, because there's a million people who I bet wanted to be in my position at that time. Um, so I don't like losing, you know, I, you know, I talk to Whitehead about that often, just, <laughs> I think he crossed me over that game real bad. <laughs> just me trying to go for Scott report. And, um, you know, that was just one of the more memorable ones with that first pink out game. But definitely. So speak and speaking of Seton Hall, I mean, the pink out atmosphere is one thing, but tell me what it was like, you know, getting under the lights because when you when you played St. John's, it was at Carneseca, but now right. you get to play on the Madison Square Garden Court. It's something every kid that wants to play high level basketball that's what they dream about being on that court. But what was it like just being there and in the Big East tournament against a team yeah. like Seton Hall? And I, I'm glad I got to be there for it, but that was a hell of a game too. Yeah, uh, that was. Those are one of those games where you where you can get lost in the lights. Um, that was my first time actually being low enough, not in a nosebleed, at a game at the Garden. You know, being from Philly, you don't really go to see the Knicks often, but it's hard to get in there. Um, yep. But being on the floor, you realize that why that arena is so special, because it's like the whole arena is dim, but it's like a spotlight on the court only, and it's. And I'm like, why is it? Why is the lighting different? But the, it's shining a light on the court, but it's dim everywhere else. And it's kind of shaped where the fans are looking down on you. It's like you're in a, like a, you're in like a pit. Um, and like that game, I want to say I was so nervous. Like I couldn't find a basketball. I didn't have too much air in it. Uh, <laughs> um, two games before we played Providence, and I got kicked in my groin and. Um, that was one of the toughest games playing against the hall because I wasn't hundred percent. Um, I didn't have my normal burst. Um, and I had to guard some tough opponents. You know, my boy Cole went crazy that game. Uh, you know, we had a chance to win at the end, uh, but we didn't, you know, we weren't able to pull it out. Did they win it that year? I believe. They yeah. They, year? yeah. First time since 93. Over, which, right? Yeah. That was what I went to all three games and I kid you not. Yeah. I, so I, the outfit I wore that night against you guys, I wore the same exact thing and didn't wash a damn thing Friday and Saturday. I am very superstitious like that. If I have a bad game in a certain pair of sneakers, I have to change it. Uh, if, if I'm not shooting well the first half, when I have my sleeve on, I have to take it off. Like I'm very superstitious the same exact way. I have to do the same thing. So I'm wearing the same outfit. That I might not even take it off. I might sleep in it. If this is what I think helps, you know, helps these wins. Uh, but to lose to the team that eventually won the championship, mentally it was like, okay, if we would have beat them, we would have won a championship. So, like, it gave me something, but it also gave me motivation for next year. 
to just to just be healthier to make sure that teams can't go under on me from three. You know, I think they did it a lot that game. Um, and to make sure that I'm just ready for that opportunity again. So uh, I believe all those losses we had in those type moments made me – like when I declared for the draft that year, it those are what I was thinking about when I wanted to come back. Like not losing to Seton Hall again and not losing at the Garden again and, you know, being a top-10 team instead of being unranked all year. Like these are things that I wanted to do when I came back from my senior year. So all those losses and all those experiences definitely contributed to my mindset for the next season. And I, I still have to marvel at the fact that Cole Huff in that game, he had 30, what, 35? 35. He might have hit like eight or nine threes. He was, and the thing is, he had one of the best stretch four defenders in the entire conference on him with logo, right? This is a guy who locked Henry Ellenson down to like three of 14, like yeah. twice. What, so what people don't know about Cole is – I call Cole Paul Pierce Jr. <laughs> Paul Pierce was his favorite player. But if you ask any of the Crane teammates from the time that Cole got there to the time that we left, they will tell you that Cole was their favorite player. I mean, Cole every day, like, the dude didn't miss tough shots. He could make any shot, fade away, jab, turn, post, mid-range, killer, three, killer. Uh, High release point, too. High release point, like he has small. Like his hands were the same size as mine, which is which. I'm always like, how come I can't shoot this way and you have the same size hands? But like Cole was just this dude. This dude did not go out. Like we had to force him to go out once for his birthday and my birthday. But Cole did not go out. Uh, Cole didn't drink. Cole, Cole did. Of course, he might have a, a, a like a like a mixed drink. I mean, like drink, drink. He didn't drink. This dude only worked out. He worked out and went home and FaceTimed this girl the whole the whole time. I mean, she's his wife now, but he was so consistent in what he did. Class, apartment, gym. And then I kind of hate that his knees didn't hold up for him because he was one of the best players I thought I've ever seen with my own eyes. On a daily basis, like didn't have an off day shooting. And so I was a little frustrated, you know, when he didn't have big games or um his injuries didn't allow us to really play through him the way we could have, you know. But this dude was this dude was super talented, probably one of the best scorers and like mid-range shooters that I've been around, you know, for some time. Yeah, I, and the funny thing, I remember like in the arena, every shot he made, I'm like, man. And, yeah, he's and, making like, shots Johnson, off his glass. I don't know if you watched the highlights back. Gus Johnson was like, wow, after he made one yep. shot. Like, yep. He was hitting threes off the glass. Uh, I'm like off, off curls too. Off curl, I'm like okay, this is okay. But you couldn't foul him. He was he was really good at shooting through contact. He had a couple air one threes. I'm just like, how'd you make that? You know. Uh, but that Seattle hard game was you know was really a big game for him. Which is why I'm like, if I could have given a third of what I really thought I could do, we would have won because we didn't have many out outbursts from Cole like that. But he was completely capable. Um. But you know how it is when you're playing, like, Cole will get hot one night early, we'll play through him. You know, Marcus will get hot one night, and we'll play through Marcus. Isaiah, Isaiah had a game like that against DePaul my junior year, where he was, like, 8 of 11 from 3 at DePaul on the road. And we just kept playing through him. So when you have so much time, like, that's why I said it's very small. If you have an off day, you miss two, three shots straight, there's another player you can go to, you know? Mm-hmm. Um 
And that's why whenever we had new point guards coming in on their visits or start of the season, I'm always telling them, like, you ain't taking my spot. Like, like I'm helping you as much as I can, but I'm going to make sure I bust your ass every day because I got to make sure that it's known that this is still what I do, you know? Um, oh, yeah. And by the way, I got to ask you, too, because um, I think I've talked – I think I talked about with um, this – I got to bring up this name with relation to that game. Miles Carter in a – he blocked a shot of yours, which I believe Mac thought was goaltending, but Miles even said to this day, like, yeah, Mo even said it was a clean block. I mean, do you, yeah. I mean, tell me about yeah, that I, play. And, yeah, like, um, I mean, and you played with him later on, right? I did. I played, I played with Miles in Turkey for three months. Uh, after COVID, um, there was a team in Turkey, second division, and they were in last place. And they were like, and I was at a time where I didn't know if I was going to play again. I had decided to coach high school. I was like, I'm done with this. Let's go another way. Um, and I had an offer, hey, come to Turkey for three months. We're in last place. You have complete freedom to figure out what you want to do. Just, you know, help us stay in the league, in a division. So when I got there, I didn't specifically remember him because he ended up leaving and going to, I forget, uh, Seattle. He ended up going to Seattle. He left Seton Hall and went to Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, so I remember him from there, and we ended up watching the game together. And I'm like, okay, I remember you now, but that was definitely a clean block. Um, but playing, you know, playing there with Miles was actually the turning point in my career, I feel like, because that's when I first had my confidence to shoot step-back threes, to shoot pull-ups. And, like, some of my highlights now, I'm always like, I wish I – played this way at Creighton, like, with the way I shoot more jump shots now. Uh, but going there, I was able to really uh, – you know, Miles was a big help with that. You know, me and Miles hung out, you know, every day I was there. But um, he was a good young kid, so being able to help him out and, you know, seeing how the world – like, how life – how you know, just how crazy life is that you come full circle like that and you're – you know, you have teammates, regardless that, that you played against, and you may not have recognized them or, you know, anything like that. Um, I'm in a situation right now where uh, one of my teammates from BU, uh, he graduated. He was the reason, he was one of the reasons I went to BU because he's from the Philly area. Um, and when I was a assault, the year I transferred to Creighton was the year he graduated college and started his pro career. So he's on year seven or eight now. And he actually is my teammate now here uh, in Romania. He's been here for the last two months. But to me, I'm like, you don't get the it's like the odds of becoming a professional is very high. Like it's hard to become a professional, but it's also hard to be a teammate overseas with someone that you're so close with from growing up. So to have one of my college teammates now be one of my professional teammates is another example of like life is really crazy and like you know god is good life comes around full circle and you get to have experiences where you'll never forget them uh so another thing that reminds me i mean in terms of bringing everything together i think a lot of people sh tend to shit on the nit it's the not important tournament but like if you have a good run there, it can lead to a lot of off-season momentum. Getting to right. the quarterfinals where I think you lost a B – yeah, you lost a BYU, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. But yeah. to get to that stage, 
I feel like that must have been important to get to, you know, preseason third in the conference, top 25 preseason. Yeah. But again, the the moment that changed everything. Like, okay, this team's good, but everyone got to say, like, oh God, this team's final four good. The home game against Wisconsin. I mean, I mean, yeah. tell me about I, mean, I gotta I gotta need the whole scoop on that and your emergence and a, a big seven footer, eight yeah. 19 year old kid putting his yeah. stamp on the game. That that was, I knew we were built. We were going to be good because Marcus and like Marcus and Justin during their redshirt year was just they cooked us every day on a redshirt team. Like every day, we just couldn't stop them. They were just getting better and better and better. Um, and that game against Wisconsin was one of those games where, okay, like we 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 all started to watch future, a bunch of future uh, uh, videos and. You know, um, for Justin, we wanted to give him an identity. Who who are you? So he wanted to be a rock star, but kind of like how Future talks about being a rock star. So, you know, we would call him rock star Patton sometimes, you know, like rock star Justin, and he was calling rock star or whatever. Big and Money too? So Big Money came later on. Oh, okay. But but we were called, like, his name on my phone was always was JP the rock star. Like, that was in preseason of how we got him you know, you need, like I said, you have little things. You got to know your teammate personalities. He was quiet. He was, you know, laid back, didn't really talk much. But giving him an identity, he started to come out of his shell a little bit. Um, and I believe that game against Wisconsin, we won that game because of Marcus off the court. Like, every day we played one-on-one after practice, and he was the biggest trash talker. I mean, not even about just basketball. Like, he may just wake up and call you. I'm like, hello? He'd be like, yo, you know I look way better than you. Like, this is Marcus every day. <laughs> yo, you know you my son. You trying to do everything I do. Like, he just talking that trash. So, you know, you laugh about it, but you also know that if you miss a layup, you get dunked on, he's talking trash about you. <laughs> As a team, if we didn't, like, even Coach Mack would let us talk trash to each other, get into arguments on the court. Like, and it gave us that identity. So when we played against Wisconsin, it was – okay, we got our feet wet with the UMKC game, got that out the way. Uh, and I want to say after that 8-0 run, we were in a huddle like, yo, we can do this. You know, they're top 10, but, you know, we can do this. So just all game, just like playing against the team you saw in the tournament, you're playing against, you know, Coach Greg Gard, who's a, national, a nationally recognized great coach. And – you really have to low-key just black out. You have to be so into the game. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Biker Boys with Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Lawrence Fishburne in it. But when he was on the bike, he had tunnel vision. So whenever he raced, all he saw was tunnel vision. He didn't see the fans or nothing. And I think we had that. We were able to really black out everything. We were able to go and talk trash. And, you know, we wanted to make every basket so we could talk trash, you know? every block so we could talk trash like and I think that right there for that Wisconsin game um it gave us it gave us a lot of energy but going on that run like our goal was to hang with every team and wear them down so most of our wins came from we had one run where there's early second half late second half where we'll go like 10-2 and you know just be up by eight and kind of coast from there but when we went on that run I think I think uh I think Marcus might hit a three. I think Taz got a steal. 
Uh, I think Taz had another three. We ended up going up 11. I still watch the highlights every night before every one of these games. Pretty sure, sure Patton had an oop during that run. Yes. Yep. Yep. He had an oop during that run. I mean, and hearing the crowd, like, that crowd is so powerful to Creighton because when you – because you make shots – for you, you make shots for the score, but you make shots so those fans can go crazy. So you can turn and flex. Like, so having them go loud and be louder and louder and louder, that contributed to us being as tough as we were. And then, you know, when we had road games, it didn't matter because no fans were louder than our fans. So, you know, having Wisconsin come in and you beat a top 10 team, I believe if we would have lost that game, our season wouldn't have went nowhere close to where it was. But winning that game right there let us know, like, yo, this might be a crazy year for us. Man, now I think about it. Mark, the way Marcus just calling you, like, in talking to his – like, that's player hater of the year energy. Listen, that that is Marcus. I mean, it could be anything. It, it, I mean, like, Marcus is – like, you know, you'll play one-on-one. He like, yeah, I'm the best one-on-one player in the world. We'll play and he'll win. And, and you won't hear about it. Like, we had dinner that same night. And he'd be like, yo, you know, I cooked you earlier, right? Like, <laughs> even now, he, he might call me, uh, me and Ronnie Harrell uh, and Marcus. Um, me and Ronnie were groomsmen at Marcus's wedding. So, like, we're super, super close, all three of us still. So we'll have FaceTimes or whatever, like a group FaceTime or whatever. And if someone scores on me over here or if someone dunks on somebody over here, he's calling us and he's like, yo, he cooked you, bro. Like, I thought you was good. You know, like, he just always is, like, it's it's, it's what makes him funny. And it's, it's, if he doesn't talk trash to you, he doesn't like you. And, we, like, we had a situation when he first, when we first, my, my, my red shirt year, I mean, my junior year, which was his red shirt year, where I say, yo, why are you always talking trash? Like, you got a pot with me or something? Like, cause I, like where I'm from, you don't always do that unless you want to pick on somebody. And he was like, listen. So he called five of his best friends from home that he grew up with in Texas. And they all answered the phone the exact same way. You know, like, uh, way more profanity. But, and I'm like, you talk to your friends at home like this. Yeah. Like, if I don't love you, if I don't like you, if, then I won't talk trash to you. I won't talk to you at all. So then I started like, okay. Now, now I know the, how to play the game with him, you know. Uh, but you know, I, I always say, I'm like I've had success because I work hard and I'm talented or whatever. But one of the main reasons why I have good games is because I don't want to come back to my phone after the game and read from the paper or read from one of my friends that I was bad or that I, or that I'm a bum, you know. So. The fear of being talked about by your friends as being not good or by your city as you not being one of the best, that that drove me to even still now to have good games so that if we lose or if we win, at least I did my part and I showed like I showed up. Um, and that comes from a lot of that, a lot of trash talking. You know, it's not it's not even welcomed as much in Europe. Like if you're trash talking in Europe, they look at you like you're crazy. And I've had my reputation kind of smeared a little bit because of that. Like, they may say I'm too competitive or, or um, 
I'm too intimidating to the to the locals over here. But all I'm doing is talking trash while we're playing. But they don't know how to separate on the court and off the court what's serious and what's not serious. Um, so it's something I've had to watch my like watch about myself and about my game over here is that you know you can't do the same things in Europe that you did in America because they don't respect it the uh they don't respect it the same way. Europe's got to get with the times, man. They just gotta. But you, I know we. I feel like the full circle has kind of you know been a recurring theme here, and I I think nothing can encapsulate encapsulates that more than an undefeated showdown on New Year's Eve in Omaha against the school that you always wanted to go to, came as the defending national champs, the number one team in the country, Villanova. I mean, how much do you remember just because I know as a competitor now, you black out for games like this, but what do you remember about the hype going into it? Uh, Maybe you knew some guys or play, even playing against them the year before, maybe you've played against them growing up, um, going into this monster matchup. Yeah, I played against uh, I played against many of those guys. Uh, you know, Chris Jenkins is someone I'm close to even to this day. You know, you play against JB uh, the year before also, uh, but he's more coming into his own now. Uh, but I remember that game just being so hype. Like everyone had to wear, everyone was they were passing out white shirts to everyone at the door, so everyone in the crowd could have on a white shirt. Um, and I, the thing I remember the most is, you know, we came out that game and was up like 21-11, 21-9. And then me and Justin both got two fouls at the same time. And that's when they were able to make their push, make their comeback. So about that game, I always just wish that I didn't get in foul trouble. Um, I got in foul trouble a good amount at Creighton, like my junior year for sure. Uh, but But that was like, I've never heard the crowd so loud. I've never seen the energy be as polarizing as it was in there. And if you ask any Nova player, they'll tell you that that game was probably one of the best games that they played against uh, a team because of the fans and because of how we competed. Um, but, you know, that those are one of the games that you, like, you can't really be upset at a win or a loss just because, like I said, it's another life experience that that you, you have to hang on to. So, you know, seven years later, I could still replay a lot of the plays in that game, you know, as if it just happened. Um, but, but you got to compete against the best team and you didn't get blown out, you were winning majority of the time. Like, so you had to try to take positives from that. Like if it's any team you lose to, it's, it's the national champions, you know? Um, and you can take some kind of pride in that, you know, Hey, if I didn't get in foul trouble, the game is a lot different. Like, you know, you can always make your excuses, but like that game, just before the game, I had people trying to sell me sneakers and trade for tick like those tickets were this one of the most highly anticipated games so those tickets were like we might usually get five or six tickets per game you might have got two like they were selling out like it was crazy so they had people trying to say hey i'll give you the new the new jordans that come out <laughs> for the game tickets you know like Jeez. people wanted to come to that game Damn, I wish I had uh I mean we had a sellout not a sellout, but I mean you you know how in Newark, you know, you have the curtains above the upper deck. You, you yeah, know what I'm talking yeah. about at the rock. Yeah. So they yeah. opened them for the first time in like since pre pre New Big East, um for Villanova that year. Um so yeah, I can I can speak I can speak to the kind of hype and draw to that, but I gotta ask you now, I mean I mean we had to get to here eventually. MLK Day 
in Cincinnati. I mean, yeah. first of all, it's a big matchup, you know, for Zay, you know, you lost there on, on their senior day. And now, by the way, I don't know about you. I know with the odd number of teams in the big East, I know that it's not possible, but I really want to see the return of the marathon because the new year's marathon, your junior yeah. year, MLK day, your yeah. senior year, but this is a big matchup. We're playing Xavier, who was kind of slipping a little bit, but they just played Nova and Butler on the road, the top two teams in the conference. Yeah. And they're hungry. They need a win. You're, I think you played like Truman State two days before that. Two days, yep, yep, yep. So, yep. like, you have to lose Nova, so, yep. Like, you're going from, like, it's like you're going from playing, like, a single-A team for baseball and you're playing the Yankees the next yep. day. So, I mean, take me through what, you know, what the matchup was like. Um, this is when Edmund Sumner was still healthy. Um, yep. I feel like another one of those point guards that was just scary good in the they big Miles, that year. Yeah, Miles Davis. Too. I think it was Miles I, Davis. Yeah, for, for three games and then he uh, stepped out. But, um, yep. but so, I mean, the first half kind of went its way. But, uh, I mean, can you tell me what was going through the first half? And then, obviously, we got to get to the – the and one where you had that unfortunate awkward landing. Yeah, um, the game was, the game was a uh, was was crazy. Is it was really loud in there. It was a, like I was looking forward to the game, but when I was warming up, something just didn't feel right. Like I I always remember this. Something about my body just didn't feel right. I don't know what it was. As I'm playing. I usually get into a certain type of groove, but even the first few possessions of the game, I just felt, I don't even know the type of feeling to say. It was just a feeling that I had like in my stomach, like something wasn't right. Um, but, you know, we came out strong. It was, you know, I think we were up like 17 to nine or something when I got hurt. Um, I went to do a handoff, just a regular handoff with Marcus and Sumner tried to jump the screen. And when he jumped the screen, he need he need me on the outside of my knee, um, and I immediately couldn't walk. Like I had to be carried off the court. Um, and I think that's when I made it like tore my meniscus or something like that. Like during that during that first hit, but the game was so crazy. Like they went on like an eight zero run after that, tied the game up. Uh, the crowd was going crazy and. I just subbed myself back into the game. Like, Coach Mack didn't even know that I was going in. I subbed myself in. Me and him had developed that kind of trust to where after – I, I kind of knew how long I would be out and when to go back in, I would just run to the table. But I subbed myself back in um, because, like you said, like I've always grown up, like, with my favorite player, Ben Iverson. And one thing AI always did was play through injuries, like a million injuries. So if I ever had an injury that I could play through, I'm doing it because that's what my favorite player did. Um but when I got on the court, I was just limping so bad. It was just so noticeable. And I told Marcus on the foul line, I said, bro, after this possession, I'm going to tell Coach Mack to sub me. Like, I got to, I, I have to get out the game. And it was the possession before I got the end one. And I believe that if I didn't go back in, I may have only needed like a little meniscus scope or something. I'd have been out and been back for the tournament. Um, but that possession, I'm, I think I passed the ball like two or three times. And, you know, no one was getting up a shot. And when I got the ball back, it was just like instinct. Now, at this point, okay, go score. Um, but when I jumped, I knew that my leg was hurting. So I tried to land soft. And when I landed, like I heard the pop. Um, and for like the first 12 seconds, 
12, 13 seconds. It was just the most excruciating pain. Like, and then it went away. Um, but I told Coach Megan Mealy, I said, bro, I'm done. Like, I heard the pop. Like, I'm done. Um, and they they took me in the back, and they did the knee test, the meniscus stability test, and all of that. And my knee was really stable. Like, they were like, hey, this is just a little meniscus thing. Like, it's 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 stable. There's no ACL uh, signs. I'm like, I heard the pop, though, and I felt it. Like, for the gym to be as loud as it was and for me to hear that pop super loud, like, it had to be that. So, um, of course, I go back out on the bench and, you know, I'm doing, like, defensive slides. I'm trying to do sprint, like, just little high knees to see how it feels. And I'm just like, it doesn't hurt that bad, but I just – I know I can't play. Like, I can't cut or move. So, I end up winning the game. Um, and there's a picture of me being carried off, like I'm holding up the number one sign, like, which I thought we were going to lose just because I wasn't playing. Um, and I was so excited because in my mind, I'm like, if I can't play anymore, this shows that we can beat big teams without me. Um, so that night we flew back. I was probably up to about four or five in the morning and I'm normal. I'm sitting in the backseat of a car, like my knee is bent and I'm just moving regular. I'm like, okay, maybe it's not that bad. But I went to sleep. I had my MRI at like eight. So I woke up at seven. From five to seven, me sleep. I woke up and my knee was fat like a balloon. Couldn't bend it, couldn't move, couldn't walk, couldn't do anything. And I was like, how, how could this happen in two hours? You know, they said my knee was fine. And um, this is probably one of the toughest conversations because I, I got the, I did the MRI and I go to the trainer room and I'm sitting there with Ben uh, McNair, our trainer. And he's on the phone with the doctor, but when he's normally on the phone with the doctor, he's not on the phone that long. Like he's normally on the phone for, you know, two, three minutes and he's off. But it seemed like he was just dragging a conversation out. And I was like, this can't be good news. So he hung the phone up. He just was like, mm-hmm. uh, you ACL, like your college career is done. That's how you told me. And I, I just like broke out in tears, bro. It was just like, he's like, this is not it. He said, he said, I wish I could tell you something different, but I can't. Like, there's no, I said, so there's no way I can put on a knee brace. There's no way I can wrap it up. There's no way I can. He's like, nah, this is nine months, nine to 12 months, like, you know, regardless. So this is one of those conversations where every injury, you can kind of be comforted. Hey, just a sprained ankle. You'll be fine in two weeks. Or this is, you know, be fine in two months. Like, this was like, like I was crying. He just was like, yeah, I, I don't know what to say. Like, it was just, one of the most toughest moments. And I, that's when I got set and I made my Instagram post like right then and there as I was crying. Like, so some some of my words are a little off. Like my grammar might not be the best. I'm just in tears in my eyes as I just wrote the post. And I got out the way. I called my dad at like, this was at like 12, one. My dad was in Omaha by like eight, nine o'clock. Like he heard me crying and got on a plane like, you know, right away. Uh, and that was just like, one of the toughest times when all the hard, like I just, I actually just retweeted a tweet from Kobe from when he uh, tore his Achilles. And he said, this is such BS. All the training and sacrifices flew out the window with one step that I've done millions of times. The frustration is unbearable. The anger is rage. Why did this happen? It makes no sense. Now I'm supposed to come back from this and be the same player or better at 35. How am I supposed to do that? I have no clue. Do I have the consistent will to overcome this thing? Maybe I should break out the rocking chair and reminisce on the career that was. Maybe this is how my book ends. 
like those just that first paragraph from Kobe is exactly how I felt like how am I supposed to come back from that from from a career a potential career ending injury no more college games like I'm expecting to maybe get invited to the combine this year make a run in the final four like I was just looking forward to so many things um but I also was able to be okay once I calmed down because I was getting my flowers like from everywhere. Like people don't know this, but um, Butler sent me a card and the whole team signed it. Um, and just talked about how much of a competitor I was and how much it was a joy to play against me. And that's when I was like, you have an opponent sending you letters about how great it was to play against you and everything. Like my mark was made. So for like two or three days after my injury and it was announced like it was probably the best time because I saw all my hard work, you know, pay off because you don't generally pay attention to yourself. And, and you know, now I get to sit back and be like, wow, I really led the nation in assists when I was playing like Rondo Ball in the class. Like, or, you know, we beat Wisconsin. We beat Dennis Smith, who's a top 10 pick, like, you know, potential top 10 pick. Um, I won a championship in the Virgin Islands that year. So it wasn't like I actually was like, okay, I, I usually watch my game on film to to learn what I can do better. But then I was able to sit back and be like, I wonder if I like my style of play. Like if I was a coach, would I recruit myself? And I actually became a fan of my own game by being able to just sit back and watch and reflect on it to where I'm like, oh, okay, that was a good move. But before I'm just like, it could be better, you know. It's, it's like that game really, really like kind of changed my life, you know, for the good and for the bad. Um, but there were much more positives taken out of my injury than negative. You know, it's really fun. I think I remember tweeting myself, and I'm a junior at Seton Hall at this point. I remember tweeting like, okay. damn, I feel bad. I feel so bad for this because even I respected your game like – and I was like getting to the point where like I kind of was starting to like get towards either being at the top of being the leader of the student section or being the leader. And I'm like, I, I, I still going to be like, I know my job is to talk trash and be the be the ringleader for all these circus clowns. But um, I, even now I'm like, damn, like I felt bad for this guy because, you know, as much as it pained me to watch you carve seat hall up multiple times, like. That's because you're really damn good. And I'm like, yeah. damn, I feel bad. You, I would never wish that upon anybody to tear their AC on at their college career and like that. So I, I think I, I remember tweeting that. I, I got to find it, but I know I did. Yeah. But and was it also kind of weird? The guy you were playing against, Edmund Sumner, and then two weeks later suffered the same exact fate. Yeah. So it was – I had to – now, me and Edmund are really cool. Like, we're – you know, I had been getting cool with – uh, OG Ananobi at the time, he tore his ACL in the end of that year. Then I, me and Edmund, Edmund were just talking, just, you know, uh, on Instagram every now and then. And um, when I tore my ACL, he actually wrote me and was just kind of like apologetic because he felt like maybe him needing me first was when it happened or, you know, he didn't want to be the cause of my injury. And a lot of my family members and friends were upset at him because of, that hit when he need me first. But, you know, for me, I had to say, listen, you you don't hold that against somebody who's just playing hard, number one. He didn't come out and kick me and try to hurt me. But he actually is a really good person. So I felt terrible for him. 
they were supposed to come back to Xavier, right? I mean, to Creighton right before he tore it. So he didn't make the trip, but I would have loved to have seen him. Um, I tweeted at him. I gave him a bunch of advice over the years. I'm happy to see that he's back um, in the NBA and still, you know, still playing, still able to jump and be athletic. Um, but like I said, we're, the whole thing with this has to be full circle because, I mean, he had this – how how freaky is it that that happened to me and then two weeks later it happened to him? Um, so it was like some things you just really just can't explain. Um, and, I, and I didn't wish that upon him or anything like that, but these ACLs are more mental than anything. Can you overcome? Can you be strong? And I think it was great that me and him got to lean on each other during our journeys of going through the same injury at the same time. So I can't even imagine like that ends your college career and you're like, oh shit, now I got to play professionally. I mean, what was that transition like of just getting ready and having to miss the early parts of, uh, of your first professional season, obviously going abroad and, you know, living now outside of the U S. Yeah. So I missed, I missed my whole first year. Like, uh, I didn't play. I it took me eighteen months to recover from my injury. Um, I had to change rehabs a couple times. Um, I ended up getting back on the court after twelve months and then re-injuring myself. Had another six months of rehab. So I didn't play again. And so I got hurt in February. I didn't play again till September of the next year. Um, but you know, to be honest with you, it was the hardest parts was because of the injury, you, you're not going to the high level to start that you should. Because you have everyone saying, well, we have to see you play again. You have to prove that your knee is strong. You have to prove that you're still, that you still got it. No one's seen you in a year and a half. You know, so it's like you're hearing all of those things. Um, in my rookie year, I ended up going to the Netherlands. Um, I had recently, I had got married in August of that year of 2018. I got married. And then in September... Um, I went to the Netherlands and I don't really know how tough that year was because my wife came with me in October. So I was able to go to the gym, play, and then leave all that at the door, walk into the apartment and be around my wife and my kids. So it was, um, it was just a tough adjustment getting used to the fact that they don't care about American basketball. Like foreigners, love what you've done overseas i mean in in the u.s but when you come to the u.s to europe from the u.s it's like the slate is wiped clean so they didn't care that i was the assist leader the year before they didn't care that i had this resume because in their mind european basketball is better so they don't like european coach i mean they don't like american coaches or nothing like i have a coach now whose son plays in the u.s and he just doesn't like american coaches you know um so it, that was tough. Um, it was also tough coming off the bench from a, like for the first time in a long time um, because I'm a, I'm a tone-setting, flow-establishing type of point guard. It's hard to come off the bench when the game already has its flow. It already has its rhythm. And then me try to impose mine or the game might be too slow. It might be too, you know. So uh, I was able to get in the starting lineup. Um, I won the Dutch Cup. Uh, ended up making – First team all league and was runner up in MVP voting. Uh, the MVP was actually on my team that year. 
Um, so it was actually like, okay, you know, it was tough transition overseas, but, you know, I was getting paid for the first time to play basketball. Like it was an unreal feeling. Like my wife and kids got to experience that. I got to be in Amsterdam and travel to France and Russia, Italy. And, and it was just, like you said, going through a bunch of stuff I went through that past year, I had to learn to appreciate just breathing air, just being able to take another dribble, another shot, because with my cartilage problem, it was a chance I could never play again. That's how bad it ended up being after I got the MRI. Um, so it showed some resilience. I got to learn a lot about myself that I get to use now, um, how to go through adversity of a coach who, like, when you play for Coach Mac it's very hard to play for another coach because they don't care. They don't care as much. They, they, like coach Mac had a specific style to dealing with you that made you want to run through a wall for him. And these coaches over here in Europe, they don't care about that is what can you do for me lately? And what can you do for me now? That's it. Um, they don't care about your opinion. Like if I go to coach, like, Hey, I want to run this play. I, I like, I have a part of my reputation in Europe is, that I think I know more than the coaches. But I don't, but like I, maybe I do, I don't know. But when I go to them, I say, hey, we're down five. Let's run this play. Let's run that play. Coach Mack will allow me to change the play that he called because I'm on the floor. I see something different. These coaches are like, no, I don't care if you see the whole lane. Don't refuse the ball screen. Run the play this way. No, don't throw it to him. The play is for him. Run it. So I, I was able, like, I ended up becoming more like robotic. And whenever I make a suggestion to the coach, I was seeing that I know more than him, as opposed to no, I'm just giving my idea on the court. So you have to really understand that you're not back in America, um, playing abroad. You realize that you can be replaced at any moment because there's a guard at home right now, looking for a job. Um. So you have to kind of be so strong in, in yourself with confidence and, uh, you know, you're away for 10 months. It's not the same as being in college when you're from Philly and you're in Omaha because you're still in the States. So it's an easier flight. You still have the same food and seasonings and this, you know, the same laws. But then you come over to Europe and um, you may not have a, you may not have a car. You may, uh, like, like I've been this, I'm in a nice apartment, but I've been here by myself for the last eight months. Like my family came for two weeks to visit. So can you be okay with the loneliness, the isolation? Um, you have to get used to being around strangers who, you know, like when you have an exchange student come to you or you, you have like, for example, we might have looked at him as weird because he's the foreigner and we're the locals. He has the accent. He, you know, can't speak English good. So now when we come over here, we're now the foreigners. So now they look at us a little weird. Like you have an accent, uh, you don't speak our language. You have to embrace our culture. It's a whole culture change. And that makes me respect the guys like Martin, the guys like Luca, the guys like Larry Marketing, who could come from Finland and Croatia and, you know, um, Slovenia. I think Martin's from Slovenia. So Martin's from Slovenia, but Slovenia and Croatia are very close. They have like the whole like Slavic thing. Yeah. Um, but to come from those type of countries and 
be able to adjust to, to the American lifestyle. Now that I've been in doing this in Europe for five, six years now, it gives me a lot of respect because it's not easy adjusting to food and the, the money difference, like how much a dollar makes over here and then you go somewhere else and how much your money means over here. Um, a big thing I have here is I don't understand the laws. If I get stopped by the cops for driving something, I don't know if the ticket they gave me is right. But here, I know, okay, I was I was I was jaywalking, they're gonna give me fifty dollars. It is what it is. Um you don't want to see any cops here, like they're nice here, but you just don't know because you're you're so not in your culture and in your comfort zone. And you have to do it for 10 months. And and that's hard. Um because you don't have many off days. So you might have one off day a week. And in that one off day, I can't drive five hours to Italy and go to Venice. I can't drive. When I was in Poland, I couldn't drive to Warsaw and just go to the capital for two days. Like, because that one day off, you want to rest. You don't want to be in the car. So even being over here, you don't get to explore like you would as if you were on vacation. Yeah. So there. So that, I think that brings us to my next point. You know, with the isolation and everything, are there have there been guys that you know you maybe ended up playing against that you're like, oh yeah, either maybe you teamed with them in Europe or you just played against them in the European ranks. You're like, yeah, I can lean on this guy. Maybe we can uh, you know talk during you know maybe before or after games when we when y'all face each other on off days. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So there. So there are guys like that that I have uh dm relationships with that we just talk you know if, if i go to their city we'll go get dinner or something like that um i want to say in my five teams i have james ab darius so in my seven in my six teams i've been on i only am super cool with three of the americans from that from those overall i would say i have three three americans that i like and i have one foreigner like domestic one that I like before this season um, that I got to Romania uh, about five Q2 um, because you're coming over here and I could be in year one and there's a guy in year nine. And if I tell him, yo, bro, go back door, he'll be like, bro, you're a rookie. Don't talk to me. Like, so there's a big difference now when you're playing for money. It, it's, it's not like you don't have to be a team. You don't have to go out as a team. I may never see them unless it's practice. You know, you can't talk to some of these guys. This guy, look, I mean, look, I'm 34 right now. I'm 22 trying to come here and tell me what to do. Don't talk to me. That was my first come to America moment. I told a guy, bro, you got to make the sprint. He said, bro, I am in year 12. I don't care about this sprint. You make the sprint and don't talk to me again the rest of the time you're here. Like that was one of my first experiences where I was like, what kind of leader can I be now? How, how do I lead when guys are telling me you're a rookie. Don't talk to me. Um, and I thought, so and now, I thought a lot of Americans are assholes too. Jesus Christ! No, 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 no. I will tell you right now, these international guys are assholes. And and to and to me, what makes them assholes is their lack of. They're oblivious, you know. Like, you know, someone can be like racist without being racist like without knowing that they're being racist like people can be discriminating and not you know, okay for example i had a guy over here tell me like when i was in like fifth when i was in actually i was in fifth and sixth grade the first time i went to a school in in philly and like in king of prussia that was like majority white 
And the, the, the gym teacher saw my mom after like a month or two and was like, hey, everyone likes him here. He fits in really well. Um, he, everyone, he has friends. Everyone likes him. Boom, right? Now, in one breath, she's giving me compliments. But in my other breath, it was like, why wouldn't he fit in here? Why wouldn't he have friends here like everyone else? I didn't hear you go to anyone else's parents and tell them that he fits in, that we like him, that he has friends. But you're saying that to me. So my mom was like, she didn't mean any harm by it. But those comments take me back to making you think that this, you know, like this black boy is fitting in. And you get some of that in Europe over here, where it's like, wow, we didn't expect you to like our food. We didn't expect you to um, to be so cool. We thought you would be a little bit disrespectful and crazy and uh, troublemaker. Like these are um, these are American stigmas that you have, but the comments that their foreigners make over or that the locals make over here, like they don't mean any harm by it, but you can easily take offense to it just because they're oblivious in their culture. It, like you have to be mature when you're, when you're over here, right? Like something that they're saying in Romanian might not translate respectfully in, uh, in English, but they said it as a compliment or they say it as just a regular, but the way it translates when they say it, it, it can be taken a different kind of way. Um, so that's, that's one part. The, the other part is they don't really appreciate the Americans coming still in their shine. Because you have eight Romanians and then you have five Americans, four or five Americans, and the Americans are the ones that are expected to score a lot and rebound a lot and block shots and make everything happen. And then the locals are just meant to keep the game close and be effective when you're in there. Um, like I had a guy when I was during my rookie year, I couldn't practice every day because coming off my knee injury or whatever. The guy went to the gym like, I don't think the team captain was like, I don't think it's fair that he doesn't have to practice and I have to practice. So he had to practice or, hey, this dude was going out last night and we had practices more than that 10. Like they're telling on you to the gyms. Like, so you can't have conversations in the locker room because they someone's in there is going to run back and tell the gym. Because the GM could have placed a spy. The GMs could have, um, you know, they don't want you coming in, taking my minutes and taking my shine. I was the star player now. You're coming in and you don't even got to practice as much. So I have, like, trust issues initially when I come to these teams because I don't know who's telling me the truth, who wants to tell on me, who wants to be my friend just to be me. So um, I tend to be more walled off over here, which is hard for me because I'm – type point guard like to talk to everybody have a person want to have relationships to everybody because i feel like that's how you play better when you know that someone has your back um but this team in romania has been i would say the best team like for that i have about three or four guys that i'm going to talk to when i'm done that are american and i have maybe like two or three that i would talk to that are romanian like this is probably the best team i've been on for where we can i'll, I'll go get food with everybody and not just my one person that i pick so I'm appreciative of this year because it gives me like a positive feeling that I can get along with a bunch of guys over here and it, that you can have a good locker room, but not every, every locker room is a good one, bro. Like not everyone. It's a so, lot that goes in. So a couple of last things. So first of all, you know, you talk about, you know, being in isolation and all that, you know, 10 months out of the year. I mean, 
doesn't and not no one really knowing you per se. So when you got to come back stateside for TBT, playing as I eventually realized, an hour away from where I live in Syracuse. Um, I'm mm-hmm. from Utica. You were in Syracuse. I mean, was it good to like for people like, oh yeah, I remember that guy. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it was it was it was definitely good when you watch the games after and you hear the commentators talk about things that you did while you were in college. Uh, because like you said, when you're overseas, it's, it's 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 always out of sight, out of mind. And that's not an attack on anybody, but that's just how it is. You always pay attention to what's right in front of you. And, you know, Europe doesn't have American pub, uh, American licensing and American TV deals and stuff like that. There's no ESPN for us over here. You, you might watch on YouTube or have to get a, a, uh, an alternate site. So you do, you know, you do forget, a, you kind of forget about the ones that killed unless they're in like EuroLeague or, you know, something like that. Um, so it was good to come back and play against some guy that you've seen and have people come up to you recognizing what you do. Uh, because when you're in this isolation, like a big fear that I have is like right now, if I want to shower at 3 a.m., I can shower at 3 a.m. If I want to cook at 5 a.m., I can cook at 5. If I want to, if I want silence all day, I just don't have to answer my phone. A big fear that I have is that I'm going to do this so long that when I come home in the summer or when I'm home for a long time, I won't want people around me as, as often because over here, I'm used to my space. I'm used to my quiet. I'm used to pretty much being able to move when I want to move. But when I go home, my back, I have my kids. You get no silence with the kids, with the babies, you know, you have to cook on the schedule, you know, you're back around, you know, I'm back around my wife. So I have to be, I can't just leave my clothes everywhere like I want to right now, but this is what I live for because I want to go back to that. I'm looking forward to that. But what negative impact will this isolation have on me? And that's something that, like, I see a therapist about it sometimes, about other things, but I'm talking to my therapist about this. It's like, how do I not let that get to me? And it's this isolation, you know, you're really by yourself because like none of your friends are here. None of your family is here. None of the guys that you play basketball with is here. Um, and they can't just fly out. Like it's hard. So no one may ever see you play as a pro because who can afford to go to Italy in December or in November? You know, there are some who can, but you're pretty much by yourself. And how do you deal with that? And, you know, for me, I'm always on FaceTime with them, but this isolation always lets me, think about what would happen if I wasn't around everyone. But then I go home in the summer and everyone's like, oh, we followed you this year. You know, we remember what you did. So going back to your point, like that offsets the isolation where you can go to a big environment like TBT and you see guys come up to you like, no, bro, I love what you did at Creighton. Or, hey, sorry about your injury, but we loved your game. Like the, like that, like you always look for things to let you know that it's worth it and that it's been worth it for the last 26 years to have your life based around this. And those moments, like TBT was one of them where I'm like, you know what? This shit is worth it, you know? And it's, and it's been worth it my whole life. So I guess the last thing, I mean, and the reason, and it's kind of like how I, not, like, I guess like found the courage or like initiative to reach out to you was the outpouring of, you know, reconnecting with Creighton fans. Cause it seemed like, you know, yeah. 
no one's really, I mean, like, no, we haven't really heard from Mo Watson in a while. So, you know, like, well, well, and obviously you still follow the team from afar. And obviously, especially when Creighton has the kind of run that they did, something that you obviously strive for. And I think your team is more than capable of when y'all were fully healthy in 2017. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, the big question here is, you know, with that recency of, you know, reconnecting and seeing the outpouring of love, appreciation from all these Creighton fans amidst that big run, uh, you know, looking back on your time at Creighton, you know, you know, what were your most fond memories, biggest takeaways uh-huh. that you've carried with you, you know, yeah. the pro rank the last six years? Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, what's the tribute to that is me coming to a place where, um, I don't like forgiveness out of you can't hold everything. Um, you can't hold everything in against people. You, you know, no matter what happens, your name is attached to something. Um, and like I said, I still don't think I would be as good of a player as I was if I didn't go to Creed. I wouldn't be as good of a person as I was if I didn't go to Creed. Um, but I just wrote a book about my time at Creighton and like my trials and tribulations. Uh, I just finally finished it. Um, I've been writing it for a few years now, but it's like mentally it's not hard. It's, it's not easy to, to go th- to relive things. And um, I was able to get a lot of things out in this book, a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions, a lot of clarity. But but what it did in the time that I did that was it allowed me to realize and think about all the love that I've always had in Omaha. Um so, you know, being a fan of the, you know, I remember um, I reached out, uh, you know, Ryan Nemhart reached out to me during the assist game, losing streak, and was just asking me advice. And, you know, and I wasn't there when he was there. So I was just like, why are you reaching out to me? And it let me know that, like, I still have an impact on these guys no matter what happens. And I have to be positive. I don't want to be shut off from the school. Um, so now during the run, like, I've always watched the creating games, but I may not tweet anything or I may only see the negative side. So now this year I've been like just embracing the athletic department again, just, you know, wanting to remember that there were a bunch of kids when I was there that looked out to me. And, you know, now during this last few months of me getting love from the school, um, from like the fans, it's, I've, I've gotten pictures of kids who were five and now they're 12 and we had pictures together back then. And these kids are old enough to text me now. Um, parents still want me to have relationships with their children. I think that matters the most to me. So I've, about like, I want to say two or three months ago, my wife decide, my wife and I decided that this summer we're going to go to Omaha so I can show her for the first time, you know, what it looks like there. Um, I had a camp in Omaha two years ago. Not last summer, the summer before I had a camp, mm-hmm. um, which was a big success. Um Whenever I needed money or anything, I can go to Omaha and work for a few months. So this is somewhere that I actually can see myself being. So um, I decided that when I retire, that's where I'm going to move um, before I get, you know, every basketball player doesn't go right from basketball to coaching. I mean, if you're lucky, you do. Um, but in the meantime, I want to go somewhere. If I'm done in five years, I go to Omaha and I can live there for a few years until I get my coaching off the ground or whatever. But, you know, the connection that I have there are unmatched. So just being able to reach out and reconnect with a lot of these people is genuine because that's what I really want to do. But it's also 
really good because when I go back, I always have a hand extended to help me. And I get a lot of offers like that. Hey, come back to Omaha. We're going to help you set up. Hey, come back to Omaha. If you start a business, you got a good business plan, we can help you. Like these, and I'm always like, you know, who knows where I'm going to go. But I just decided that that's where I want to go. I want my wife to experience what it's like to be living in a city like Omaha, where I've been through some hard times and I still get the love. I still get the respect. Um, it's a good place to raise a family, man. It's a really good place to raise a family. I'm a big fan of Omaha and living there. So, you know, just be able to reconnect with them. It'll it'll make it easier for my transition, you know, when I decide to, you know, when I decide to hang them up. Well, I mean, there are a lot, a lot we talked about. Chappelle show references, play a hate of the year and stuff like that. But I mean, yeah. just a lot of good dialogue in general, man. Because normally, like, we just, you know, just stick to talking hoops. Like, I mean, we talk about like international dynamics. I mean, where yeah. else can you get that kind of stuff than right here on the Igloo, you know? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This is a podcast I've been hearing a lot about. Uh, I, and it was during the playoffs that we started to try to get it done. And, uh, you know, we couldn't get it done, but I wasn't standing you up, man. It was just time difference, and sometimes I'm just down after a loss. It gets crazy during this time, so I was happy that, you know, you were just patient enough to wait, you know, to wait to still get me on here, man. This is – um, and, and I, I haven't done many, and I'm going to – because I, I, I don't want to – I want to do a lot more podcasts when I promote a book, which will be this summer. Um, But I'm happy that you're just one of the original ones that I can say was one of my first that I started to do the podcast on my on my way. So I appreciate you having me, man, for sure. Well, uh, speaking of I, speaking, of, I know you made a big, you know, you made your big announcement in terms of, you know, you dropping a book this summer. I got a little bit of announcement of my own regarding the future of the Igloo. I know I talked about it a couple of weeks ago on my own Twitter, but that announcement is coming up right after this. Mo, thanks for the time. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely stay in touch, my man. Oh, man, for sure. But my phone's on any time, man. Well, it's finally time for my big announcement. So as I mentioned before, a couple weeks ago, I kind of had a bit of an a bit of an existential crisis with should I keep the igloo going? Should I shut it down completely? It was really I was only looking at those two extremes, and I was very much leaning towards I I can't keep doing this anymore, and I want to call it quits. But to me, I also felt like what was most conflicting about this decision was not being able to go out on the terms that I want to because it, it would feel premature, like I'm going out in a whimper, failing, mo mo most importantly, feeling like I'm failing and that's why I needed to shut it down. But as you learn in life, Sometimes you just fail, and that's okay. It's what you do with those failures, accepting them and growing from them. Do I feel like I've been feeling here on the Igloo, at least with this season? Yes, I do. I have felt that because I know there is competition, and I'm pretty sure at this point I don't, I don't need to say them by name. You know who I'm talking about in terms of who has been my competition. I, I've kind of perpetrated a war with them. Foolish in hindsight, you bet. But I've always believed in doing things the right way. 
earning my guess, like Mo, with my my credit my credibility of knowing the league, knowing the players, and being a real ally to the players. At speaking, you know, I was friends with almost all the guys on the basketball team when I was in college. Because I developed a level of trust with them. You know, considering I lived with one of them for a whole year. I developed a level of trust with these guys. Like, yeah, I'm your friend. I'm your ally. And you can rely on me. You can count on me for whatever. Because I'm in your corner and nothing's going to change. I pride myself as a loyal person. So... I mean, I know I'm kind of like going on a tangent here, but again, I earn my guess. If I had the money to sh- to shell out to earn appearances, to get to get appearances, trust me, I would be making it rain like I'm Lou Williams in an Atlanta strip club. <laughs> Such a stupid joke, but I had to do it. Anyways, but I want to do things the right way. With everything, really. But as I mentioned, having I pride myself on having credibility of knowing the players and knowing the league. Again, I grew up with the old Big East. I had, my parents had season tickets at, at the Carrier Dome. And I went to SU basketball games pretty much my whole life before I went off to college. So I know the history of this conference inside and out, and it only grew tenfold with the new Big East when I got to Seton Hall. So with that being said, I think something that I excel at is interviewing these guys who are pretty close to my age. Like Mo is only a year or two older than I am. So is the igloo going to end? The answer is no. I want to continue it, but essentially this is a rebrand. Will it still be the igloo? You bet. Will it still be Big East Hoops? You bet. However, the difference is I feel like a lot of these episodes, they tend to go pretty long as just like this one, but I can make it more tolerable. Not tolerable is not the right word, but it's easier listening. If it's shorter, don't have as much going on. Just, you know, one segment where it's just, the goal is to go have these interviews on a week-to-week basis or bi-weekly or one or the other. But that's the goal, where I want to be able to talk and do interviews with important people in the history of the Big East. Former players, former coaches, broadcasters, you name it. 
And essentially, I got a bit of a blueprint for this from the folks at Biggie's Rewind. You know, they have a great layout. For me, I'm a history junkie. And I'm just, you know, I'm a, I'm a fanatic of the old Big East. I'm an even bigger fanatic in with the new Big East. And what this means, well, it will definitely entail me having to branch out to other platforms for you to not only hear my content, but see my content. Because as I've come to learn, YouTube podcasting and even like TikTok shorts, as much as I may loathe TikTok and hate everything that it stands for, and I'm not even like conservative, like, like take down TikTok because the Chinese are spying on us. Like, no, TikTok just blows. But in this era where people's attention spans are getting a lot shorter, you, I may need you to just do clips that people are going to want to hear. Or want to see and hear for that matter. Because they just want that boom, boom, quick content. You know, go up their feed, maybe like a 60 second long thing. Move on to the next one. And that's that's kind of where I stand. Um, what platform is I going to expand to regarding doing video? Um, I don't know, but I feel like the video component is a necessity at this point and it will be added in season five and beyond. But what does this mean for the rest of this season? Well, I'm thinking after this six more episodes, I got another interview lined up with another former Creighton Blue Jay for, for the next episode. But... And then on top of that, TBT's this summer. Xavier's hosting a regional at Cintas for the second year in a row with Zip Em Up. Definitely going to hit up CapEx. Hopefully you can get me a player or two from Zip Em Up uh, to talk about that TBT regional coming up this summer. Hell, if, if my schedule allows... I will make my way out to Cincinnati. I've been meaning to see the Centos Center and see the city of Cincinnati in general because I really... A, I want to go see the place where our King Harambe was brutally taken from us. And this... So July 21st through the 24th, that is when that regional will be. So I plan on having a few episodes this summer where I will be, you know, talking about TBT. Uh, see... Yeah, so the team I work for, the Blue Sox, they are home uh, July 21st. Um, I mean, if I can have it my way, I could, you know, find a way to get out there maybe Saturday or... 
I don't know. I, I definitely want to see Cincinnati. Want to see Cintas. Want to see the Xavier campus. And see all my Xavier Twitter peeps. Like Capex. Like Andy Picarillo. I mean, I said it on, on Twitter. You know, Xavier Twitter is a top three Big East Twitter fan base. Just great people all around. Great senses of humor. Just, just fun people all around. So, yeah, that's that's the big announcement. I know it didn't sound big, but the state. this is essentially my State of the Union address. And in this case, the State of the Igloo. The igloo will not die, but in order for it to be a lot easier for me, because as I've realized that I've realized that it's a lot of it's it can be overwhelming for you guys as listeners, but it's overwhelming for me to record all of this too. Like shit, like it would be really nice to have my workload if I could alleviate some of my workload, where I only have to do. An, ep- once, an episode once a week or bi-weekly and I wanted to make it easier like for example I do the Blue Sox podcast and I've only done a solo inter- solo episode I think I've only done out of the 30-ish episodes maybe like two or three solo episodes now is because push came to shove and I had no choice all the other episodes I had guests lined up but I definitely want that video component in there. And I'm, I think moving forward, I definitely want to get a better video camera because the camera on my current laptop is fucking dog shit. It just is. And I will, you know, have a more updated YouTube channel. Like I don't have, like I have one under my like name that I uploaded my cringy college decision video, which somehow has 3,000 views. I mean, it lives, it's a legendary video. I mean, for the sake of, you know, oh, and that's my college decision. And that's how everyone knew me. That's how everyone learned to know me uh, because people knew I had the decision video from Housing and Residence Life at Seton Hall. Um, and then people knew me when I stepped on campus because of it. And this is before I even took my first class um, that August. This was in like late June when I stepped on campus. I'm like, oh my God, it's a decision video kid. I'm like, how the hell do you people know me already? Well, that's the answer. Housing HRL, they uh, circulated, um, you know, that video. Shout out to my friend, Pat Heinz, who's from my hometown, from the same high school and was working at HRL. And that's kind of like how it, kind of spread yeah but whatever but yeah that's that is the plan so the igloo will not die yet i do want to go out my way and what's the overall plan well mostly interviews with former biggies players Coaches, etc. Um, the Big East tournament. You know, as much as I love going to Mohegan Sun in the Garden every year, 
it it's been burning a hole in my pockets, especially this year because with being out of the pandemic, hotel prices and whatnot just skyrocketed. Well, not skyrocketed. It went it 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 increased quite a bit. So, you know, part of it's to cut costs. And you know what? That's okay. You got to do what you got to do with the kind of circumstances that you have. And as much as it's going to pay me to not go, in the long run, it may be what I need to do. And I'm at peace with that now. But if there's anything I know, I know the league's history and I know the pl- the names of, you know, the players, the coaches, and of course the history. Certain results, certain games have them down to a T. And I think that's where I excel most. That's why the the Igloo will be going in this direction. Will I have some current players on? That's the goal. Men's and women's. And that's why, you know, will I still be at media day? You know, that's my nice little, you know, once a year trip, you know? So, again, it'll be mainly, like, I'm trying to think of what the split would be. Like an 80-20 split, where, actually more like 90-10. Because current players and coaches, is with where I'm at, in terms of where I am on the totem pole, I'm really low. So it's a lot harder for me to get current players and coaches. On the men's side, at least. On the women's side, they're a lot more accessible. And those programs like to put themselves out there more. And then on top of that, another reason why I, I, I can't turn the lights out in the Igloo yet and no last call for the Igloo yet I still feel like I have some unfinished business and I wanted to have the real sense of closure that I wanted to have for the show. And when I do call it quits, because I want to do it on my terms, not on anybody else's. And I want to have as, as much as I hate and resent, like, for example, like having like the coach K farewell tour cringy, right? But It's not that I want to have a farewell tour. I want to have a proper final season to properly say goodbye. Will it be next season? That's something I got to mull over over the summer. Who knows? But whenever that time comes, you'll know, just like I've let you know, what the state of the igloo is currently at. And that's where this episode will end. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to Mo Watson for... Joining me inside the Igloo, a really great interview, and I hope that y'all braved it through the entire thing. I know it's a long one, but I promise every second of that interview is worth it. And I hope, even if you're not a Creighton fan, if you're just a Big East fan at large, and and remember, like, oh yeah, I remember Mo Watson now. I, I just hope you enjoy it because it's not a discussion about just hoops. There's a lot of things that were covered in that. And that's the kind of content that I want to bring to you guys when this rebrand officially 
takes place in the fall. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll catch y'all next time, whenever that may be, for another edition of the coolest podcast in all of college basketball, the Igloo. And just a friendly reminder, it's got to... I just, I just got to pull this up because, listen, it's April 30th. It's April 30th, so that means only one thing. And what is that one thing? Justin, how about you tell us? It's gonna be May. That's right. And you know what? We sleep in May. To quote John Rothstein. I'm not saying I'll I'll be gone for the entire month of May, but because I'm literally doing an interview, I'm recording with Toby Hegner on Thursday, and that will be on the very next edition of the Igloo. So until then, this is Timmy Ice signing off. Thank you for tuning in. For those of you who have, you know, been listening and supporting me throughout this entire journey, just know I genuinely appreciate all of you. And for those of you who had the input, you know, maybe to give me the encouragement to keep this going when I was almost ready to just say, fuck it, I'm just going to lock up shop and call it a day. I had a good run. I know I'm not going on the terms I necessarily want, but this is ultimately my final decision and the final decision that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. And also, a decision that's probably the best, in my best personal interest, but this was, as you heard, the decision I've come to that will be the best decision for me. And for all of you moving forward, I'm hoping, you know, that, you know, y'all will continue supporting me throughout the rebrand. But And, of course, for these final six episodes or so before that rebrand officially takes hold in the fall. So thanks for tuning in. I'll catch y'all next time right here on the Igloo. Take care, y'all.